Um, as you will hear from my voice, uh, I have been sick all week. I haven't been sick once this entire winter. Uh, and then this week, uh, I got sick. So uh, thankfully, I caught it early in the week, and, but my voice is still uh, pretty rough. But just so you know, I know that listening to a rough voice can be a bit distracting, but I'm not in any pain. So don't spend too much time listening to me and feeling sorry for me. And my voice just sounds goofy, and, and that's it. So, um, but anyway, I'd uh, love to have you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We find ourselves back in 1 Corinthians after being out of it for a couple weeks for uh, Palm Sunday and for Easter Sunday, and here we return. Trust that you'll find the study sheet in your bulletin helpful, and there's a few uh, review points on there that you might find helpful if you need to recall where we have been. But I want to jump right into this passage today uh, because this is an incredibly difficult passage to preach. And really, if I had my way, I'd have a two-hour lecture complete with slides and diagrams and everything. But we don't have that today. And we still got to do communion at some point as well. So um, we're just going to jump in now. This passage, um, uh, just thinking about this, some of you have been reading ahead and some of you have already asked about this. You've got this, said, whoa, what is that about? And how are you going to deal with that? And uh, well, we are going to, we're going to look at it today, but... Um, one commentator, just to give you some perspective, Craig Blomberg says this about our passage today. He says, this passage is probably the most complex, controversial, and opaque of any text of comparable length in the New Testament. A survey of the history of interpretation reveals how many different exegetical options there are for a myriad of questions. And I'll tell you, this sermon, reading for this, I did more reading for this sermon than any other sermon I've ever done. In fact, this is uh, one book I use. This is a book I find very helpful. Don't agree with everything in it, but that's true for every book out there, I suppose. This is a book called Man and Woman, One in Christ, and it's a study of gender relations and theology in all of Paul's letters. Now, in this 400-plus page book, this passage alone takes up over a quarter of the book. Uh, That would be chapters 6 through 12, all deal with this passage. So I'm just saying that today to let you know, if you're wanting me to discuss every little nuance, we're not going to hit it today. Uh, rather, I'm going to be more summarizing, but I do want to say this. I invite you, if, if there's something you want to ask questions about or talk about, I'd love to sit down and talk in more detail about anything that we cover in this passage today. Because i tell you, I cut a lot more out than I kept in the sermon. All right. So here, here's what I want to do. I want to go ahead and pray. And then I want to read the passage before us, and then we'll jump into it. So would you pray with me, please? Uh, God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for the privilege it is to have a church family. And we can come together and we can sing to you. We can worship you. We can open your scriptures and learn about you and examine our own lives in light of that. And God, I pray that that is what you would help us do today. Even with a difficult passage, sometimes, God, the... um, It can just become about learning what the passage is about. It can become intriguing. It can become a mental exercise. And and God, we don't want it just to be a mental exercise. We we want our lives to line up with you. And so uh, this morning, Lord, I pray that you would sustain me and my voice uh, to be able to preach. But Lord, more than anything, I pray that you would speak to us and help us to have hearts that are, are moldable, help us to examine ourselves, help us to learn and draw close to you. 
And in this process, Lord, we need your spirit. So, Lord, we pray that you would do that. Uh, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let's read the passage. I'm going to read starting in verse 2. We dealt with verse 1 uh, last time we were in 1 Corinthians. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 through 16, uh, reading from the ESV today, says this. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought, not to, why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made through man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And there you go. Very clear, isn't it? Well, you know exactly what to do with this. Well, no, it's not that clear. And this is a passage that uh, has a number of interpretive issues. And, and honestly, a lot of very smart people come to very different conclusions. Uh, but I want us to know something. Even though there's a number of different interpretations, uh, the majority of academics, scholars, and commentators agree that uh, even when they come to quite a different interpretation, they agree what Paul's main point really is here. What Paul's getting at here, and as you're on your study sheet, I'm going to give you some blanks, is that the application that points us to avoid careless behavior and blurring gender distinctions while worshiping God. Ultimately, where Paul is going today is he's going to say, hey, there's some things that are appropriate for one gender that aren't appropriate for another gender in worship. And, and, and how you approach that in worship speaks to what you think of the Creator. Now, what's interesting in this whole passage that we just read is every time Paul says something about one gender, he makes a corresponding statement, a contrasting statement about the other gender, except for in one verse, which is verse 13, where he tells uh, them, judge for yourselves, is it appropriate for a wife to pray with her head uncovered? And in doing this, a lot of scholars, and I agree with them, believe that what is really going on here is that the issue in Corinth is that the, the women were doing something that wasn't appropriate for their gender. And Paul, rather than just saying, hey, stop it, rather he, he uses the men as a bit of a foil. It's kind of like he says, uh, it's not appropriate to worship God in this way for one gender. And, and, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to build a framework of what gender-specific worship, gender-appropriate worship looks like. And I'm going to show you how it can be violated both by males and by females. So that's what Paul's doing here. He's kind of using the guys as foils, I believe. And so we're going to look at this now. A number of interpretive issues as we look at this. Of course, one of the first ones is this is occasional literature. It's a letter written to people. And so to really understand it, we need to understand, well, who were these people? 
um, what did these things mean to them? Is what Paul's saying only intended for them in their cultural setting? Or is he saying something everybody should follow as a universal principle? And if not, is there an underlying principle to what Paul's saying that we could then apply to ourselves? And I think that's the case here. I think that this text deals with a lot of very specific cultural things that don't apply to our culture, but there's an underlying principle that does apply to us. The other thing I need to mention first, just as a, a starting point, is uh, we got to think about translations here this morning. Usually we don't talk a lot about translations here. Uh, and, and this letter originally was written in Greek. Uh, it's been translated for us into English. And anytime someone translates something, they have to make some interpretive decisions to make a translation read well and make sense to a foreign audience. Well, when sometimes you get to a text that has a lot of vague and difficult elements here, translators will have differing opinions on how to interpret it. And so sometimes you get translations that contradict one another. And that's the case here today. In fact, some of the the interpretations that the ESV translators made that I read from, I disagree with. And what I want to say this morning, just to start off with, is anytime there's a disagreement in terms of a translation choice, I don't want us to walk away saying, boy, we can't really trust our Bibles. That's not the case at all. I want you to understand that every major English translation of the Bible is very well done and very reliable. And we don't just throw them away just because we come to one very difficult passage and say, oh, there's differing opinions here. The fact is, you could go to a store and you could pick up an NIV, a King James Version, uh, NASB, a Holman Christian Standard, an ESV, a New Living Translation, and, and all of those will say exactly the same thing about the gospel, Every major doctrine will be in agreement. Uh, they say the same thing about who God is, who Jesus is, and how you have a relationship with him. All right? Those are the main things. So, so when we talk about these things, I don't want us to lose confidence in our English translations, but I want to talk about some of them and, and why there are some differences here. So let's jump into the text and look at specifically. The very first thing I think Paul is doing in verses 2 through 6 is he's building a foundation that there are gender distinctions. The uh, very first thing he says in verse 2 is, he says, Now I command, commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions as I delivered them to you. And, and in a sense, he's giving them a compliment here. And you see here that they've maintained the traditions, so probably what they're doing now isn't one of the things he's taught about before. And he actually uses some gentler language here than other places in the letter, which to me indicates that probably what's happening in Corinth isn't out of like some malicious intent. It's probably more out of uh, them being unaware of something. So Paul's going to help them out here. And the very first thing he does is he does this word play to show that people were doing something with their physical heads that was dishonoring their spiritual heads. And so we see this in verse 3. Paul says this, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. So he's talking about spiritual head. The head of every wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. And every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered, that's his physical head, uh, dishonors his spiritual head. For every wife who prays or prophesies with her, this would be physical head uncovered, dishonors her spiritual head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. And so Paul is kind of first starting with the specific order. I think what he's doing is he's recalling the order of creation all the way to incarnation. Essentially he's saying, hey, that the head of every man is Christ. In creation, man was created first. And who created? Well, according to John, 
It talks about Christ being the Word, and the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what does John say? He says, all things were made through him, and without him, not anything uh, was made that was made. So uh, we see that in creation, the creation of man, Christ was present, and it was through Christ that Adam was created. All right? Then we have, what's next? Well, woman was created from man. Eve came from man. And we get to the incarnation. We're not talking creation here, but the Father sent the Son. Right? Of course, the Son is part of the Trinity, eternally God, not created, uh, equal um, with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But in the incarnation, there was ascending of the Son. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. He's building uh, a framework for us. And one of the things we, we see here, like in the ESV, they bring in some husband-wife terminology into this which I actually think it should be kept more general. A more literal translation of this verse uh, for the women would say the head of a woman uh, or the head of woman is the man. And some translators avoid this because they worry that this sounds like the head of every woman is every man. And, and that's really not what Paul's getting at here. What he's getting at is there's this general framework that God has done and we can see God's intent through how creation happened. In other words, the order of creation wasn't accidental. And so Paul is developing this idea of how does spiritual headship work? And really his main point in all this is to show that there are differences in genders. There are differences here. Now, uh, one of the questions we rightly ask is, well, what does head mean? What does it mean to be a spiritual head? And, And this is a question that gets so much debate, and I wish I could spend time here, but I had to cut out almost everything I, I, I intended to write uh, or talk about here. But one of the things we do have to be careful of is anytime we have a translation and a word is used in one language in a figurative way and then it's translated into another language, sometimes we can bring our own figurative meaning into that word. In our culture, oftentimes when we think about someone being the head of something, we think right away they're the big boss, the authority, right? She's the head of the company. What does that mean? She's the boss of the company. And from my study, I don't think the Greeks really used the word that way. Uh, Rather, I think the word still implied some sense of responsibility. And in your uh, community group discussions, I I have you this week look at all these different uses that Paul has, all the times he uses head figuratively, and to see what what sort of responsibility comes with being a spiritual head. Uh, For now, I'll just leave it at Colossians 2.19. Paul's speaking to a church and there's some people not obeying Jesus, who's the head. And Paul's saying they're not holding fast to the head. He says, who's the head? Well, it's the one from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that's from God. And in that we see what I believe the spiritual head carries the responsibility for the head to be a source of life and nourishment to the body. So what does that mean in, say, a marriage relationship? Well, I mean, I think it means that God has given the husband a special responsibility to help the family thrive spiritually. And it's my belief that the husband and his behavior can either help a family thrive spiritually or to wither. Now, is this saying that a wife doesn't help a family thrive or that a wife can't cause a family to wither? Well, absolutely not. Of course that can be. But I think in general, when we look globally across the globe, who is primarily causing families pain and suffering? It's typically men. 
When men do not follow God, there is no end to the amount of physical and spiritual and emotional devastation they can create in families. Because I think God gave a special responsibility there. A man who follows God, who, who seeks God, I think can cause a family to thrive in a very special way. Now, this responsibility certainly could cause the men reading this to kind of get a big head about it, right? A little bit of pun intended there. And, and I think one of the things that's beautiful about Paul is every time he writes about this, he, he kind of makes sure he balances it out. If you read through all his uses of head, we see there that really this idea of headship, whatever it means, and there's a lot of debate about what it means, um, it never, Paul never permits headship to mean that you have some dictate. Uh, you can be a dictator, you can be an authoritarian, or you can be abusive. There's no room for that. In fact, Paul tells husbands to love their wives like Christ loved the church. That's a self-sacrificial love. That's a love that puts my needs second and puts your needs first. And in fact, I don't think it's an accident that when we get to chapter 12, just one chapter from now, Paul uses the idea of head again, figuratively he's speaking about the body of Christ. And listen to what he says in chapter 12. It's verse 21, 22. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Now, why would Paul say that? And he just told a bunch of guys, you're the head. And probably you're saying, hey, guys, before you start looking down on anybody, uh, let's remember every part of the body made by God, every part indispensable. Don't you start looking down on anybody. Don't you get a big ego over this. This is a, a responsibility that God has entrusted you with. Now, we also have to remember that in this, Paul's speaking to a communal, gender-divided, honor-shame society. Uh, and he wants them to see that dishonor flows all the way up to God, who is the ultimate spiritual head. Right? So let me read one uh, commentator who talks about their society. He said, in the gender-divided, honor-shame culture, the head of the family publicly symbolized the family's honor, so members of the family were not to behave in a way that dishonored that person or brought shame to the family. See, what Paul's getting at here is there, there are differences in gender, what's appropriate in one gender and another gender. And, and all of us, regardless of being male or female, all of us have a spiritual head. And the actions that we do, if we do things that are dishonorable, it doesn't just dishonor me. And actually, it doesn't just dishonor my immediate spiritual head. This flows all the way up to the one who is our ultimate spiritual head, and that's God. So what you're doing in worship, if you're dishonoring, doing something dishonorable in worship, please understand this act of worship, which was meant to bring glory to God, is actually now bringing dishonor to God. And that's Paul's concern here. Now, now what were they doing with their heads? Well, there's two possibilities uh, that I see. Either it had to deal with head coverings or with hairstyles. And again, there, there's a lot of vague language used here. I won't get into it, but... Um, if it's head coverings, what Paul's basically after is perhaps for men, for them to cover their heads. This was actually something Romans did in pagan worship. They'd take their toga, they'd put it, drape it over their head, and then they'd do pagan sacrifice. And it'd be an issue because now as a man covering your head in worship of God, you're looking like a pagan. Or for women, to uncover your head would uh, communicate immodesty. Uh, so these are possibilities. If it's hairstyles, historians point out in that culture, men who had a long hairstyle, some men adopted long, effeminate hairstyles to communicate uh, homosexuality. And sometimes women 
let their hair go wild to communicate some immodesty as well. In fact, the statues we have of the Corinthian culture and the Greek culture, respectable, honorable women always had their hair done up. And the only time you see women with their hair down and loose is when they're partaking in some pretty immodest activity, shall we say. So the idea here would potentially be uh, hairstyles, gender-specific, but both communicating immodesty. And, and, and what's interesting in Corinth was there was a cult that had both hairstyles associated with it at this time. Very interesting. Now, here's the thing. Both head coverings and hairstyles both have some major weaknesses with them in terms of how they apply to this passage. And, and nobody has really a great argument for which one it is. I personally believe this whole passage is about hairstyles, uh, while the ESV believes this whole passage is about head coverings. But the beautiful thing here, the application doesn't change one way or the other. Uh, basically, he's saying, hey, whether it's your hair is uh, immodest or your lack of head covering is immodest, uh, don't do anything immodest. Don't, don't play around with immodesty. If you're going to, like he says in verse 6, you might as well just shave your hair. You might as well just go all the way. Shaved head was a sign of someone who was a prostitute or an adulterer. So Paul's saying, hey, if you're going to be immodest a little bit, you might as go all the way, but you're not going to do that because you know it's wrong, so why are you doing this? All right, well, let's go on. Let's take a look at what Paul says next because uh, it doesn't get any simpler from here. Uh, creation matters. Let's look at verse 7 and 9. Paul says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. What I want us to see here is that this passage is focused on men and isn't intended to be directed at women. See, Paul's point is that woman, not another man, was made to be man's companion. And, and I, I would say this, I hope this is helpful, but it, it's kind of like this. If, say there's a football game going on. You have a quarterback who's refusing to throw away the ball, so he keeps taking a pounding. He keeps getting sacked. He keeps getting hit. And, and coach comes, grabs him by the face mask, gets his face down there and says, hey, what are you doing? Throw away the ball. You're the quarterback. You're the brains of this team. You're not indispensable. Uh, your body can't take this beating. Hey, you're not a running back. What's the coach saying at that point? He's telling the, man, the quarterback, you are specifically this. This is your role in the team. Now, is he implying that everybody else on the team is dispensable? Is he implying everybody on the team is dumb, like the quarterback's the only smart one? No, he's using a contrast saying, this is what you are, you're not this. It's not intended to put back down running backs. It's meant to give clarity of, you are the quarterback. Here's what you're supposed to be doing. And I think the same thing is going on here. Paul says, hey, man, you, you are the image and glory of God. And, and he's not saying, hey, women, you're not the image of God, because we know Genesis 2 says women are image of God. He's not saying women don't glorify God. No, what he's getting at is when Adam was created, the very first moment where Adam was created as alone, God looked at him as the very first thing in creation that God looked at and said, this is not good. And what did God do? He created a companion suited for him, perfect companion for him. And in that creation he created, that companionship also included, this was who Adam was supposed to have sexual companionship with. When, it, when the Bible talks about the woman being man's glory, it's not saying it in a demeaning way, it's meaning this is the person man glorifies in. When Adam first saw Eve, he literally sang. He's like, at last, 
bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is awesome. And that's what he's saying. If, if the issue here in Corinth is men were doing effeminate hairstyles that had any suggestion of, hey, I'm available for you other guys, Paul's saying, hey, you weren't meant to be another man's glory. You weren't created for man. Woman was created for man. Okay, he's going back to creation. He's saying, again, arguing that certain things are okay for one gender and not for another gender. There's gender distinction in how we worship God. Now, um, I'll say this really quickly. While certain elements of gender expression are culturally bound, Scripture teaches that God is honored when men are men and women are women and whatever that means in our culture. I think for as a church, we need to identify what's healthy masculinity, what's healthy femininity, and we need to celebrate those. Um, I, 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 at least for speaking from a male standpoint, I've really enjoyed the men's fraternity series we've done at the men's breakfast. I think that's done a really good job of presenting a healthy biblical uh, idea of what manhood looks like. And guys, if you haven't been involved in that, I think you really should be. You shouldn't miss that opportunity. Well, I want to move on to verse 10. Verse 10 is particularly difficult. Probably one of the uh, most challenging ber- verses, uh, the greatest variety of translations. Um, first service I read from this book, Grammatical Concepts 101 for Biblical Hebrew. Now, this is about Hebrew, not Greek, but he has a passage in here about translation theory and how sometimes making interpretive calls and translating verses creates very different things for very hard verses. Guess what verse he uses as his example verse? This one right here. The ESV says that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And honestly, this is a uh, ESV uh, translation is heavily interpreted. And I would honestly go with a more literal translation of this one. More literally, this verse would simply read, because of this, a woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels. And from a natural grammatical standpoint in Greek, this means it's the woman exercising authority, not having authority placed on top of her. So she's exercising authority. And what Paul's essentially saying here is, because of everything I just said, you should do what is gender appropriate. You should exercise authority on your head. If this is head coverings, you should put the head covering on. If this is talking about hairstyles, you should do your hairstyle up in what is considered an honorable way. That's what Paul's getting at here. What I really want to focus on is his reason. Why? Well, because of the angels. That's clear, right? We know, oh oh my goodness. What is Paul talking about here? Well, here's what I think after a lot of reading. best I can understand of this, and I think this makes a lot of sense, especially when you consider their cultural setting, is that angels frequently appear with God in worship settings. I gave you a bunch of verses there that demonstrate angels in the New Testament setting are with God in worship. In Revelation, we have seven angels for seven churches. Um, last week, I recited Revelation 5, and we saw in that throne scene, there's thousands of thousands of angels, myriads of myriads, uh, beautiful scene. And what the reason this is so important is, I want you to think about this in the context of an honor-shame society. And an honor-and-shame culture, to bring dishonor to someone privately is very, very different than if you are to bring dishonor to them publicly in front of witnesses. I'll give you an example. Um, just in my travels um, in China, China is a much more honor-shame culture than we are. And in China, you can, say, dishonor someone privately, you can make up for it. But the concept of saving face is incredibly important there. And if you cause somebody to lose face publicly, 
You just earned yourself an enemy for life. That's just how it is. So think about this from the context. Where are they worshiping? Well, probably not in big settings like this. Probably at this point, they are still in house churches. After all, they're persecuted. And I could see in a house church setting, you could get a lot more casual with your worship. After all, I don't wear head coverings uh, when I'm in my house. Yeah, speaking hypothetically, women in cultures with head coverings typically don't wear head coverings in the home, only out in public. So I'm going to worship in my house today. Well, you know, maybe I don't need to put the head covering on in worship, right? Or if it's hairstyle, maybe I don't need to do my hair up in this presentable way. I'm just going to let it down for this. And I think what Paul is pointing out here is, hey, even in this setting of a house church, you are still in corporate worship, coming before God and his heavenly host. And you're speaking, what you're doing is dishonorable in terms of, you're basically saying, the, the gender distinctions don't matter to the very God who created gender. So, so Paul is very concerned here, and I think that's what he's getting at. Why? Because the angels? Because to dishonor the creator God before his heavenly host, before his posse, don't do it. Don't do it. So Paul goes on here, and we're going to look at the last two uh, sections here very briefly. Verse 11, 12, another one of those verses where I think Paul balances this out. Uh, avoid big heads is the fill-in here. And just like I said before, very similar, Paul goes and, uh, you know, what he was doing with the whole headship thing before, if it creates any sense of hierarchy, that wasn't Paul's intent. Uh, For his argument, what he was really after was that there are gender differences based on creation. So it's kind of like he realizes, okay, men might get a big head here, so I'm going to remind them if they're they're getting kind of a big head here. Uh, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman, for as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. In other words, hey, guys, if you're like, ha-ha, women came from us, well, guess what? Guess who you came from? A woman. And by the way, it's all about God anyway. It's not about you. So it's ultimately all about our spiritual head, who is God the Father. So don't get a big head. All right, we're using head a lot in this sermon. All right, final verses 13 through 16 is, even a pagan society sees gender differences. And here is where it's interesting. Paul turns explicitly to the idea of hair. Now he's not using vague language. He's definitely talking about hair here. Uh, He says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray with her head uncovered? Verse 14, does not nature itself teach you that if man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For her, her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. But Paul is looking at what's normal in their culture now. And when he says, doesn't nature itself teach you, he's not saying this is a universal principle that long hair in every society is always dishonorable. What he's looking at is what's culturally normal for you. When you guys think, oh, that's obvious as a culture. Well, for your culture, Paul's saying to them, even your pagan culture realizes that some hairstyles are okay for one gender and not okay for another gender. If Paul's been talking about hairstyles this whole time, I think this flows really well into his argument. Why didn't he just talk clearly about it before? Uh, Maybe because he wanted to use that wordplay with the whole spiritual head concept, so he used more vague language to fit his wordplay. If he's talking about head coverings here, it still works because whereas he just used creation as an example to show that there are gender differences, now he's just turning and showing even your pagan culture has gender differences And now it's just an example. But his main point here is there are differences. Some things are appropriate for one gender, not for the other gender. And by the way, if you guys want to argue about this, 
uh, none of the other churches are doing this right now, so you guys are alone in it. That's basically his argument. All right, so what do we do with this? Well, I think for us today, we have to be really careful about how we honor God in our own worship. And of course, this whole passage is all dealing with corporate worship, not private worship. It's dealing with corporate worship in a church setting. And we have to think, how do we honor God as creator in our church setting? And are there things that are gender specific and not? And and I think really the very first thing we need to think about is this requires a certain attitude on our part. I have to ask, what's my mindset? Do I believe that God is a good God who created something good? Or do I have a critical heart towards the creator? And as I think about that, here's some things for me to consider. First of all, I believe that in this passage, we see that worship doesn't honor God when we disregard his creation. Uh, Gender is a creation of a good God, so we should not participate in anything that blurs gender distinctions or mocks gender stereotypes. Yeah, here at Sunset Bible Church, it's not like we're necessarily running into an issue of people up on, like men wearing dresses up on stage or anything like that. Although there are churches doing that now. But I think we do have to be aware of even our mindset and how our culture is influencing us. And we have a culture that influences us in a lot of subtle ways. One of them, I think, is sometimes culture pokes fun at genders in an unhealthy way. Turn on the TV and every father looks like a bumbling idiot. They hear humor about women and it's always that they're kind of ditzy or emotional and irrational. And sometimes that kind of humor creeps into the church and I don't really think there's a place for that in the church where we make fun of each other and coarsely joke about other genders. No, we should be celebrating what God created. God did an amazing thing when he created both male and female. There's beauty in both Image of God expressed in both. Together they need each other. We need each other. And also we need to be aware that our culture also right now has a um, naturalistic mindset. It treats gender as kind of this accidental thing. You know, there's no distinctions. You know, it's just a product of evolution. You know, there's no room in a naturalistic mindset for a creator God who had intentionality. Why did certain roles exist? Well, it's just because people came from agrarian societies where those things had to be. Well, wasn't there a God who was sovereign over creation and created male and female the way he did for a reason? I think there is. I think we need to be important, I mean, careful in thinking about this and thinking, why did God create us the way he created us? It wasn't accidental. It wasn't a happy accident of nature. It was a God who was a creator. All right, let's go on. Worship doesn't honor God when we exercise freedoms carelessly. Any behavior from either gender that draws attention away from God is inappropriate, and such behavior not only dishonors God, but fails to serve fellow brothers and sisters. Whatever was happening in Corinth, whether head coverings or hairstyle, dealt with immodesty. And you know, it's interesting today in our Christian circles, there is a big push right now against um, modesty and any sort of holiness, any emphasis on modesty or holiness. And some of this is for good reason, Um, especially in this now Me Too era that we live in. There's a lot of people that appropriately point out that sometimes victims get blamed. Now we hear things like, well, you know, she was dressed too provocatively. And honestly, that is never appropriate. After all, it's not biblical. I mean, the Bible says that sin comes from within the heart. No one makes me sin. It's by my own wicked desires that I sin. 
But what we often do as a culture is when we get on a pendulum swing, we go from one extreme to the other extreme, and now say, well, we're not going to even think about modesty. Or if anybody mentions modesty, I'm just going to put a stiff hand up in their face. And here's the thing, I don't think that's very helpful. Problem is, I think modesty is still important, but sometimes when we talk modesty, everybody always wants a clear definition. What's immodest, what's not modest? And every time you start saying, this is modest, this is immodest, you really fall into legalism. So let me present a bit of a framework really quick, okay? That'll help us think, at least to help you understand where I'm coming from in this. Uh, is a bathing suit immodest? Depends where you wear it. See, my mom, you had the right answer. Good job. It depends where you wear it. On the beach? No, it's not immodest. You come in your bathing suit to church? Probably immodest. Why is that? Why is it modest in one place and modest in another place? Well, because I'd say at the beach, there's an unwritten social contract that says we all expect to see bathing suits here. We, we all are going to be in bathing suits here. And when I come to the beach in a bathing suit, I'm not drawing unnecessary attention to myself. Now, if I come to church, there's an unwritten social contract that says I don't intend to see anybody in a bathing suit today. And I wasn't planning on wearing one. And when someone shows up in one, all of a sudden that's drawing unnecessary attention to themselves. I think that's where modesty and modesty comes in. Of course, using an extreme example there, but the idea being there is in a church setting, especially a worship setting, our purpose here is to direct our attention to God. So why would I do anything that draws attention to me? Why would I want to do that to my fellow brothers and sisters? And here's the thing, I know that when we talk modesty, our minds go to clothing, and then we go to women's clothing. But here's the thing, folks, men and women can both be immodest in their clothing. And both genders can dress in a way that draws attention to ourselves. And this doesn't even tie only to dress. It can do behavior. There is appropriate behavior between one gender and another gender. And I can act in one way thinking I'm free to act like this, but cause unnecessarily tension by people wondering what's going on there. Is that an okay way to act? Is, is that flirtatious? You know, see what I'm getting at? In my own exercise of freedoms, there are things that are okay for me to do for one gender, okay for another gender to do. There's gender distinctions here. And I need to be thinking, how do I serve others and how I present myself and exercise my freedoms? All right, spent way too long on that one. The final one here, worship doesn't honor God when we act flippantly. No matter the location or the size, corporate worship should be done in a way that sees God's heavenly host present. If I wouldn't do it in a Revelation 5 setting, maybe I shouldn't do it at all. And here's the thing. It doesn't matter if you worship in a renovated fire station or if you worship in a house church or maybe you're camping with some friends and worshiping around a campfire. If you're worshiping God as a group, then it should have a sense of reverence and gravity to it. Tears my heart apart when I see things where, you know, turn on a TV here in Brazil, you might see a televangelist that has women and G-strings dancing around. You turn on the TV here, you might see a televangelist barking like a dog. And, and I put myself in that Revelation 5 setting that we recited last week, before God in his presence. And in that moment, I'm really in God's presence. I'm going to say, hey, right now would be a great time for me to do a little sexy dance. Or right now it would be really cool if I started barking like a dog. Are you kidding me? No, so I think we need to have a sense of reverence with how we come before God. And it doesn't matter the setting. We're coming before God who has a heavenly host. Now, this can be taken too far because sometimes people will say, well, that means we should always wear like a three-piece suit, right? 
worship? Well, not necessarily. It doesn't really get into saying, hey, three-piece suit's reverent, uh, jeans are irreverent. No, I, I think it's a mindset thing. Um, it's about attitude. Do I come with reverence? Do I come to worship with a sacrificial attitude? Or am I thinking about my rights? Do I take me off the throne and do I put Jesus on the throne? Do I come to worship and say, despite everything my culture is saying, I'm going to honor God as creator and say his creation's good. And this is important, I think, because our heart in worship, I think it reflects our heart the rest of the time. And if I can't come to worship with reverence and loving God and celebrating God as creator, I'm probably not doing it in my everyday life. All right. What I want to do now is I want to pray, and I'm going to invite those serving communion to come down as I pray. And we're going to uh, turn here and come to communion, which I think is a good time. It's a fitting time to come to with reverence, just as we're talking about. So let us pray, and then we'll do communion. God, we thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your goodness and for allowing us to come to this text that, yes, it's hard, it's difficult, it's not entirely clear, but a reminder, God, that you are the good creator. And as we come before you this morning in communion, there's a sense of reverence that we need as we remember what you did, sending your son to die for us. We remember the hope that we have uh, to remember that when you did that, God, you were, you, you were completely in control, sovereign over all history. You knew exactly what you were doing. And so as we do this this morning, as we remember what was done, as we look forward to our hope, we do so remembering that it all came from your good hand, O oh God. So we pray this in your son's name. Amen.